This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu. Now, for the first decade of the university, Dewey was chair of the university's philosophy department, and during that time, he founded what became known as the Chicago School of Pragmatism, an intellectual movement that applied scientific methods to societal problems. And also during that time period, he founded the university's laboratory schools. Now, in 1981, our then dean of the law school, Gerhard Casper, decided the law school should recognize Dewey's contributions to the university and his contributions to legal theory. So he corresponded with the philosopher Sidney Hook, who was then president of the John Dewey Foundation, about establishing a lectureship here in Dewey's name. And Hook readily agreed and supported the establishment of this lectureship in jurisprudence. Now, the Dewey Lecture is so in keeping with the mission of the university and particularly the mission of the law school. Our law school was founded on the idea that lawyers needed to know more than just dry legal doctrines. They needed to understand the theoretical underpinnings of the very idea of law and and of lawmaking that are so crucial and have become part of legal education here at the law school and, I think, throughout the legal academy across America. Now, to understand those deeper underpinnings, legal education has to be interdisciplinary. And here again, from our founding, our law school has been very interdisciplinary and is drawn on philosophical insights and understanding. We're very happy that the Dewey Lecture has brought to the law school many distinguished philosophers to help us explore these foundations. Uh, I note, uh, I won't list everyone who has given the Dewey Lecture in the past, but I will note that John Rawls's famous paper, The Idea of Public Reason Revisited, was initially a Dewey Lecture and then was published in our Law Review. And today the Law School is delighted to welcome today's speaker, Shelia Benhabib, the Eugene Meyer Professor of Political Science and Professor of Philosophy at Yale University and Senior Fellow at the Columbia Center for Contemporary Critical Theory. Professor Benavid is a scholar of tremendous imagination, insight, and influence. She is author of dozens of books, numerous collected volumes, and over 100 articles. Her ideas and works are discussed and read all over the globe. I note that they were being discussed right here on our campus earlier today, and they've been translated into more than a dozen languages. Her scholarship and the influence of her scholarship is evident in the many accolades she has received. I will not list them all. I would take the entire hour listing them all. They include the Ernst Bloch Prize, the Leopold Lucas Prize, the Eckhart Prize of the Identity Foundation and the, and the University of Cologne, in addition to numerous other fellowships, honorary degrees. Professor Ben Habib's most recent book is Exile, Statelessness, and Migration, playing chess with history from Hannah Arendt to Isaiah Berlin. Her scholarship in political philosophy draws on critical theory and feminist political theory. She advocates for dialogues across cultures to explore the most fundamental tenets of human civilization, including cultural identity, freedom of association, and fundamental human rights. Her work explores the impact of culture on such complex issues as sovereignty, borders, and human migration. Her lecture today will explore the 1951 Refugee Convention and its 1967 protocol, 
which face new challenges with the globalization of the refugee crisis. We are thrilled and honored to welcome Professor Ben Abib as our 2020 Dewey Lecturer. Welcome. Thank you very much, Dean Miles, for this um, wonderful introduction, and thank you, Professor Nussbaum, for organizing and initiating this. It's a real pleasure to be here among also many friends and former uh, students. <clears throat> what I will present this afternoon is part of a larger project I'm calling The New Sovereignism. It is about the revival of the concept of sovereignty, both on the right and the left, but also the contentious um, relationship increasingly between state sovereignty and international law. So I also look forward to learning uh, from you, since as a philosopher, political philosopher, I am jumping into this, uh, into this domain. During the summer of 2018, a ship of refugees, the Aquarius, sailing from the coast of Africa with 629 people on board, including 123 minors traveling alone, 11 children and seven pregnant women, stood at the center of the European refugee crisis. Denied admission to Italy by the Interior Minister, the then Interior Minister, Matteo Salvini, of the anti-immigrant and neo-fascist League and Ord Party, the Aquarius drifted around the sea for days and was eventually granted permission to disembark at the port of Valencia by Spain's newly elected socialist government. The Aquarius affair was preceded by an interception at sea by the Libyan Coast Guard under a bilateral agreement with the Italian government of a humanitarian re rescue operation in November 6, 2017, which led to the death again of at least 20 migrants. The article documenting this event and signed by several migration scholars was called, It's an Act of Murder, How Europe Outsources Suffering as Migrants Drown. And in fact, the Aquarius was decommissioned after this affair um, and Médecins Sans Frontières, Doctors Without Borders, who operated the ship, uh, gave its rescue operations. Such encounters at sea take place under the aegis of international law and agreements. The sea captain who is on international waters has an obligation to accept these individuals on board as long as this can be done without great danger to the vessel and bring them to safety ashore to some country where they can place their request for asylum. If the refugee vessel encounters ships sailing on designed designated national waters carrying the flag of a national government, there is an obligation to bring the refugees ashore under the jurisdiction of that particular national government who is then obliged, which is then obliged to process their asylum application in accordance with international law. In the case of the Aquarius, this would have been Italy, which rescinded its obligations under international and EU law and was subsequently condemned by the Italian High Court as well as the European Court of Human Rights. 
Only a few years ago, we would have clucked our tongues at such episodes of European xenophobia and considered ourselves as Americans blissfully exempt from the perfidies of regimes violating the rights of refugees. But no more. The United States long considered a country of immigrants and proud of offering refuge to the huddled masses coming to its shores in recent years has joined in the othering and criminalization of refugees. There is firm evidence, as I shall explain below, that recent U.S. actions and policies along the U.S.-Mexico border violate the principle of non-refoulement of the 1951 Geneva Convention incorporated into U.S. law through the Immigration and Nationality Act of 1980. As Nanjala Niabola observes uh, um, in a trenchant article which inspired the title for my lecture, her article is called The End of Asylum, A Pillar of the Liberal Order is Collapsing, But Does Anyone Care? There is enough blame to go around. The United States, she notes, is far from the only country to slam its gates on those fleeing crumbling social, political, and economic systems. Around the world, rich and poor countries alike are pulling up their drawbridges, slashing the number of refugees they are willing to accept, and denying asylum to those who might have been admitted in the past. In Africa, Asia, and South America, she concludes, the mood is much the same. This is an article from Foreign Affairs. This is happening at a time when the number and needs of refugees are growing. I think here is the first item on your handout. A report by the United Nations High Commissioner of Refugees notes that the number of forcibly displaced persons worldwide stood at 68.5 million at the end of 2017. Today it is around 70 million. This is the highest level on record and with no end in sight to conflicts in places such as Syria, Somalia, Afghanistan, Iraq, and the Central African Republic, Myanmar, and the Democratic Republic of the Congo, already one in, already in 2016, one in every 113 person was displaced the world over. Now, some distinctions. Among displaced persons, only those who cross internationally recognized borders are called refugees. The UNHCR classifies 40 million people as internally displaced persons, of whom 25.4 million are refugees, but among whom 5.4 million stand under UNRWA, United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestine Refugees in the Near East, and 3.1 are asylum seekers, those who have in fact initiated or been accepted to initiate asylum procedures. As the number of forcibly displaced persons has increased worldwide, not only has the number of camps grown, but camps have ceased to be places where people are held temporarily. Rather, they have become semi-permanent. Kenya's Dadaab, which you see in the picture here, is part of a mega refugee camp. It's 20 years old and houses 420,000 people. Palestinian refugee camps in Lebanon are 70 to 50 years old 
depending on whether the refugee population was created in 1948 or 1967. The refugees who live in Palestinian camps and in some cases have spent their whole lives there have become what is called PRSs, those in protracted refugee situations. Refugees, asylees, IDPs, internally displaced persons, PRSs, those in protracted refugee situations, and stateless persons are new categories of human beings created by an international state system in turmoil and are subject to a special kind of precarious existence. As Hannah Arendt anticipated in 1949, their plight reveals a fateful disjunction between so-called human rights or the rights of men in the older locution and the rights of the citizen between the universal claims to human dignity and equality and the real indignity suffered by people who possess nothing but their human rights. From Arendt's justly famous discussion of the right to have rights in the origins of totalitarianism, to Giorgio Agamben's Homo Sacer, to Judith Butler's concept of precarious lives, and Jacques Rancière's call to the enactment of rights, the asylum seeker, the stateless person, and the refugee have become metaphors as well as symptoms of a deeper malaise in the politics of late pol politics of late modernity. I will characterize this malaise as originating with the dual commitments of the state system to respect territorially circumscribed sovereign ju jurisdiction and presumably equal, on the one hand, sorry, and the internationalization of human rights on the other. There are no easy solutions, either in theory or practice, to this dual commitments to uh, territorial sovereignty and international human rights. And my task in this lecture is to explore their contradictions rather than to offer facile solutions. I want to begin with the development of the 1951 Refugee Convention. Then, I, after an analysis of the doctrinal difficulties of the 51 Convention, I will turn to contemporary state practices which are, in effect, gutting the spirit of the convention. Then I'll turn to the United States and will conclude with some general suggestions about how we might think about the contemporary crisis. Now, the 1951 Refugee Convention is one of the seminal texts of the post-World War II international human rights regime, along with the UDHR, Charter of the United Nations, the Genocide Convention. And it was signed in recognition of the dangers to human beings of rendered homeless and stateless through persecution. The articles relevant for the convention are already laid out in the UDHR. For the purposes of time, you have the handout, Article 13, grants everyone the freedom of movement and residence within the borders of each state, crossing its state boundaries. Article 14 is the one that encodes the right to asylum and says everyone has the right to seek and enjoy in countries asylum from prosecution. Of course, there are some, there are some limits as to uh, war criminals are not entitled uh, ipso to be granted the right for uh, asylum. Article 15 
guarantees naturalization or loss of citizenship. It states that everyone has a right to nationality, which is then repeated in the ICCPR. But as we know, there is no international convention obliging states to grant nationality or even what that would entail. And maybe minor but important point in view of growing epidemic of statelessness now recorded as 10 million the globe over. The preamble of the 1951 convention acknowledges the Charter of the United Nations and the UDHR as the legitimizing original documents. Article 8 to 1 of the convention reads, for the purposes of this convention, this is item 3, the term refugee shall apply to any person who, as a result of events occurring before January 1st, 1951, and owing to well-founded fear of being persecuted for reasons of race, religion, nationality, membership of a particular social group or political opinion is outside the country of his nationality and is unable or owing to such fear is unwilling to avail himself of the protection of that country or who not having a nationality and being outside the country of his former habitual residence is a result of such events, is unable or owing to such fear, is unwilling to return uh, to it. Now, there was a um, lengthy discussion about the problem of statelessness and refugees during the uh, drawing up of the convention. Subsequently, a separate convention was drawn up regulating the condition of persons who are stateless. So I'm not going to go into that issue here. I will stay with uh, 51. But you can see that the convention here is trying to distinguish between country of habitual residence or, you know, uh, country of nationality, which a lot of refugees at the time did not did not have because they were denationalized. The convention originally restricted the scope of the Article 182, quote, events occurring in Europe before January 1st, 1951. With the 1967 protocol, the refugee status was universalized outside Europe because new refugee situations have arisen since the convention was adopted. Uh, it's written the UNHCR rights and refugees concerned may therefore not fall within the scope of the convention. Originally, the convention was signed by 26 state parties, heavily representing North America and Europe, and was attended by a significant number of international organizations and NGOs who participated in the deliberations. Today, there are 146 state parties to the convention, but the universalization of the refugee status through the 67 protocol has given rise to a series of discrepancies between the letter of the convention and the purposes it is being asked to serve. In particular, the five so-called protected categories specified by the convention have come under criticism. So item number four in the handout, I'm not going to go and do... <laughs> I don't know if it is doctrinal or philosophical, but some, some analysis of the 51 Convention, okay? First, the limits of the five protected categories. The Convention reads, the principle of non-refoulement, that's a French word meaning you cannot be sent back to where you came from, is so fundamental that no reservations or derogations 
may be made to it. It provides that no one shall expel or return a refugee against his or her will in any manner whatsoever to a territory where he or she fears threats to life or freedom. Okay? On the other hand, to establish the well-founded fear of a threat to life or freedom, the convention stipulates five protected categories, race, religion, nationality, political opinion, and membership of a particular social group. Again, historical evidence of the debate surrounding the convention shows that this particular social group was introduced, I think, by the Swedish delegate in particular to cover the questions of Nazi persecution of people with different abilities. Okay? But today, the category of membership in a social group, MSG, has been expanded to cover gender-based and gender-related crimes, such as the protection of lesbian, bisexual, in intersex, and transgender applicants, as well as those fleeing practices of child marriages and female genital mutilation. Canada and the U.S. have sort of led this many ways. Still, as many noted by many scholars with regards to the five protected categories, this limitation seems to be a matter of policy rather than of principle. It seems implausible that persecution, one scholar writes, is the only valid form of necessity. And of course, as I'm sure many of you who are interested in these issues today know, there is no provision for climate-related refugee movements, which is going to be the big issue now in our times. Okay, number two. There are tensions between the Eurocentric discourse and jurisprudence of the refugee protection and the fact that the largest numbers of the world's refugees are housed in third world countries. For example, the 1951 convention requires proof of individual persecution, imposing on refugees themselves and the receiving states a heavy administrative procedure of examination and verification. It has often been said that the ideal refugee presupposed by the convention is the political dissident. Yeah? But in an age of increased generalized violence, ethnic cleansing, civil wars, and armed confrontation among non-state groups, in what sense are such practices, as specified by the convention, adequate to deal with the rights of the most vulnerable? And in response to such concerns, uh, the uh, head uh, of state of the Organizations of African Unity formulated a convention in 1974 in Addis Ababa to govern the specific aspects of convention of refugee movement in Africa. And there is also a 1984 Cartagena Declaration on refugees adopted in Cartagena, Colombia. The significance of both of these regional conventions is that they broaden the definition of the refugee to include conditions of generalized violence in the country of origin, foreign aggression, internal conflicts, and massive violation of human rights, and not just individual proof of persecution. Okay? Add three. In an attempt to respond to some of the shortcomings of the 1951 convention, 
in the light of the global changing situation, the legal scholars James Hathaway and Michelle Foster propose a striking reinterpretation of the convention and its protocol by reading it in light of further developments in international human rights. Refugee law, they write, may be the world's most powerful international human rights mechanism. Noting that there is no single body charged with the authoritative interpretation of the 1951 convention, such as to resolve conflictual issues, they warn of the growing risk of fragmentation and regionalization, and they propose what they call a principled treaty interpretation. And Hathaway and Foster acknowledge the difficulty of linking the convention to all the developments in international human rights law, but they argue that, quote, so long as the risk of denial of a broadly accepted international human right is sustained, in that sense, as a practical matter, it is ongoing or systematic. It can reasonably be said that there is a risk of being persecuted of the kind that may engage convention obligations. Okay? And in uh, five, I list the relevant international human rights conventions of the post-World War II period, in the light of which Hathaway and Foster attempt to interpret the 51 Convention. And it seems to me that from the standpoint of legal scholarship, this is now the, the, the most um, contentious and maybe also the most original uh, development. Point number four. One of the biggest challenges facing the Convention is the distinction between political persecution and economic deprivation. It is well established that the 51 Convention does not recognize conditions of extreme poverty and material deprivation as legitimate grounds for requesting asylum. Economic migrants are considered individuals who raise spurious claims to protection and refuge. But how valid is this binarism between deserving refugees and economic migrants? Why are extreme poverty and material deprivation not legitimate grounds for escaping from them? Persecution on the basis of race, religion, and nationality and political opinion result in unemployment or underemployment job discrimination, as well as economic marginalization. There just is no plausible way to really try to make this distinction, I think, theoretically and in practice. But as I will argue in my conclusion, it's one of the hardest chestnuts to swallow from the standpoint of state, state practice. So, so let me just move quickly because I'm realizing that this first part has taken a little longer than I expected. Point number five, which is that the, a perverse consequence of the distinction between deserving refugees and undeserving economic migrants is that those who gain convention refugee status become a kind of aristocracy who are deeply envied by others. There are reports, ugly reports, of Afghani and Iraqi refugees in Greek refugee camps, for example, of stealing Syria, uh, Syrian refugees' documents or falsifying their own identity papers to pass as Syrians since the latter 
are recognized as convention refugees. Okay? So this is one point when you can sometimes see that the law, despite itself by creating these categories, also subjects individuals to humiliation and, unex and has unexpectedly violent consequences. Now, as Matthew Gibney observes, increasingly the term asylum seekers became shorthand in public and media discourse for economic refugees, people taking advantage of the asylum route to escape normal migration control, immigrants in pursuit of the benefits of welfare state at the expense of citizens, or especially after September 11, 2001, as potential terrorists or security threats. Economic migration and movements of refugees fleeing conflict became increasingly entangled and criminalized. Gibney's reflections lead him to the haunting phrase, a thousand little Guantanamos, and to the conclusion that we have reached the reductio ad absurdum of the contemporary paradoxical attitude towards refugees. Western states now acknowledge the rights of refugees, but simultaneously criminalize the search for asylum. Now, I want to talk uh, very briefly again. I'm sure many of you want me to get to what about the United States. Very briefly about state practices of deterritorialization. Uh, this is an important uh, development. Now, by using the phrase thousand little Guantanamos, Gibney means and here he's assuming that Guantanamo does not stand under any kind of sovereign jurisdiction of the United States, which is not true after the Hamdi and Hamdan decisions, okay? But by thousand little Guantanamos, what he means is that centers of power have been created where states and their formal and informal agents act free from the constraints imposed upon their activities by courts, international and domestic law, human rights groups, and the public at large. So a thousand little Guantanamos really refers to what has also been called the creation of legal black holes, right? And this is really spreading in the state practices of encountering refugees. Such centers where states encounter refugees emerge through the use of exclusionary visa measures imposition of carrier sanctions on airlines and shipping companies through the employment of immigration staff on airlines or even on ships, vessels, and planes, declaration of airports as international zones in which states would not be obliged to offer those in such places the protections available on state territory. For example, the Frankfurt Airport has a huge... Uh, um, building uh, where refugees still are held because it's supposed they are not on German territory and thus covered by the European Convention on Human Rights. Thus, states are expanding the encounter with refugees to sites that escape the supervision of their national jurisdictions. A process of deterritorialization analogous to the search for tax-free havens by international companies, that is, escaping from national jurisdiction is developing. 
But not only in this paradoxical process of deterritorialization there is an expansion, there is also a shrinking. And the shrinking here, the best example here is in one of the most radical measures of this kind, Australia in 2001 excised Christmas Islands, aging called Ashmore Reef, the Cocos Islands, and other territories from its migration law zone so that the landing of asylum seekers on these territories did not engage the country's um, convention obligations. And now, of course, Nauru is the site of these refugee camps, you know, the legal black holes. There has been some change back and forth in, in Australian government's practices, but this is still going on. A consequence, and I think this is important from the standpoint of both normative politics and the law, a consequence of these deterritorialization strategies is the delinking, delinking of the bond between territory, jurisdiction, and the public in whose name and with whose authorization law and coercion in democratic societies are supposedly exercised. Scholars call these processes border-induced displacements as well and argue that an ethical and political distance is created between migrants and refugees upon whose body the law is exercised and the national public in whose name such law functions. Okay? The most significant example of such extraterritorialization is the agreement between the European Union and Turkey but I'm not going to go into that. If you want to ask any questions about it, we can further discuss it. Okay. And what about the United States? I'm sure many in this audience probably know more about some of these developments than I do. Uh, American law is quite difficult, but here we go. As has been often noted by scholars of international law, Although the United States has been at the forefront of many human rights treaties and conventions in the post-World War II period, its own compliance with these and accession to them can only be characterized, in Michael Ignatieff's words, as exceptionalism morphing into exemptionalism. The yeah? US basically exempts itself from all the treaties that it has, in many cases, taken the leadership for the international community to accept. Thus, although the United States was a high contracting party to the 1951 Geneva Convention, it only acceded to the 67 Protocol in 68, but did not pass legislation implementing this convention until 1980. After the Vietnam debacle, Congress passed the Refugee Act of 1980, which established procedures for admitting refugees and handling asylum applications. Nevertheless, the United States avails itself of all the measures of state behavior that I listed above to circumvent or dispense with its obligations under the Refugee Convention and has been doing this for quite some time. One of the first examples of a bilateral agreement, such as that signed between Libya and Italy or the European Union and Turkey, was the case involving the interception of Haitians, Haitians I'm sorry, on high seas and their forcible return to Haiti. 
1981, President Reagan entered into an agreement with the Haitian government to interdict vessels sailing for the United States with only short refugee screening interviews by Coast Guards conducted on the ships. According to the scout Tang Tan Trile, in 1992, responding to a large increase in Haitian immigration flowing from military coup in that country, President Bush ordered interdiction and returned with no screening whatsoever. Although President Clinton had denounced the Bush policy during the presidential campaign, the Clinton administration continued to forcibly interdict all Haitian boats headed toward the United States. Nor is the practice of extraterritorial detention unfamiliar in the U.S. Haitian refugees who had tested positive for HIV were detained at Guantanamo Bay because the statute in force at the time made persons with communicable diseases of public health significance excludable from U.S. territory. The law was amended in 1993. Through mass prejudgment of refugees without proper interviews and the routine detention of asylum seekers, the United States contravened the spirit, if not the letter, of the convention. Now, all this pales in comparison with the transformation of American immigration and refugee law in the wake of the attacks of September 1, 2001. Not since prohibition has a single category been prosecuted in such record numbers by the federal government, writes Ingrid Eagley in an article in the Northwestern Law Journal. Judith Rosnick, my colleague at the Yale Law School from whom I've learned a great deal, notes that, quote, in the years between 2008 and 2015, immigration prosecutions have represented more than half of the annual federal caseload. In addition to criminal prosecutions, incarceration and deportation have become the preferred punishment for dealing with migration felonies, leading to the emergence of a system called crim-im or crim-migration. As early as the fall of 2014, the Obama administration had begun detaining mothers and children from the Northern Triangle countries, namely El Salvador, Honduras, and Guatemala. Again, uh, scholar Soba Vadia recounts these developments. She quotes, on February 20th, 2015, a federal judge certified the class of mothers and children and issued a preliminary injunction blocking DHS as policy. Undeterred, in January 2016, DHS began arresting mothers and children in order to detain and deport them. In some cases, they were transferred to family centers in Texas and Pennsylvania. I'm afraid that the so-called emergency at the border has been a long time brewing and is more continuous with democratic administration's policies than has been acknowledged or we would like to acknowledge. Now, a brief filed by Elora Mukherjee and the Center for Refugee Rights of Columbia University and other colleagues, a brief called Al Otro Lado versus the Secretary, then only Kirsten Nielsen, um, uh, I'm quoting from the brief, says, quote, the Immigration and Nationality Act and its implementing regulations set forth 
a wide variety of ways in which such individuals may seek protection in the USA. More precisely, the INA gives any non-citizen who is physically present in or who arrives in the United States a statutory right to apply for asylum, regardless of such individual's immigration status. And under Article 8, USC, and Code of Federal Regulations, CPB, uh, must refer for a credible fear interview, credible fear interview, any non-citizen who presents itself at a point of entry and indicates an intention to apply for asylum or fear of, on the basis of fear of persecution. This is the non-refoulement clause integrated into the United States. Instead, what has happened through a combination of tactics involving misrepresentation of refugee rights and U.S. law by officials, outright lies in many cases, coercion, deceit, and the creation of an ad hoc procedure called a waiting list enjoining asylum seekers to return to Mexico to get a number for their interview and then to cross over to the United States, the Customs Border Patrol officials, CBP, and the Department of Homeland Security have most likely violated U.S. and international law and created an emergency situation in the U.S.-Mexico border. The emergency is not only caused or was caused by the number of refugees arriving per month about a year, year and a half ago. There are legitimate logistical and personal issues that need to be handled, such as the dearth of immigration judges. But the real emergency is that this crisis may be manipulated and is being manipulated to become a state of exception in which the Constitution is suspended and the most intense and extreme antagonism, in the words of Carl Schmitt, between friend and enemy unfolds. Okay, moving towards a conclusion. How did we get here? Why is it the case that most liberal democracies, such as the United States, Germany, Italy, the UK, France, Australia, and the list can go on, are abdicating their commitments to human rights, violating international law, and creating zones of lawlessness. Okay. In an age, I think part of the answer is that, and I'll be brief here, in an age of rapid transformations, in which the coordinates of our everyday lives are melting into thin air, the refugee and the migrant have become the quintessential others and strangers. In the age of liquid modernity, to use a felicitous expression of Sigmund Maumanns, Blaming the stranger is a way of reducing complexity and avoiding responsibility. The perception of strangers as strangers is easy, seductive, and psychologically deep-seated when human beings themselves are threatened and feel insecure. The sense of being abandoned by their own state while being dumped upon to care for the poor migrant and the displaced asylum seeker in their own neighborhoods and schools that are already suffering, exacerbates fears among the native population that they too could find themselves in the predicament of the unwanted and vulnerable stranger deserted by or abandoned by their own state. Do liberal democracies have the moral, political, and intellectual resources to deal with these dynamics? 
or must they succumb to the politics of fear and ressentiment? The political philosopher Judith Clark once noted that the principal task of liberal societies was not only to render justice done, but to also to forbid cruelty. Cruelty inflicts not only physical harm and torture on its subject, but it subjects them, sorry, to humiliation and indignity. Cruelty is spreading in liberal democracies at the cost of those who are most vulnerable, whether within or outside our borders. How can the politics of cruelty be avoided? I'm going to offer now, after this very large picture, uh, a number of concluding thoughts, which are invitations to conversation, issues that I'm still working on. I think first, it is necessary to decriminalize the transnational movement of peoples, including that of refugees and migrants. To decriminalize does not mean open borders, which I'm not advocating, but it does mean regulating porous borders under international law. Today, by contrast, what we have is the treatment of the refugee as a trespasser and a lawbreaker rather than as a human being endowed to the right to have rights. States build walls, perfect border controls, create electronic surveillance fences, and spend millions forming quasi-military border patrols of dubious political orientation and loyalty. They are neither police nor soldiers. Who are they, really, members of the CPB? The major stumbling block, one has to admit, in theory and practice to the 51 Convention remains the unstable and fluid distinction between the persecuted refugee and the needy economic migrant. In many cases, this distinction is bogus and untenable. Yet, to assure continuing state support for the Convention, as well as public solidarity with the refugee, some such distinction will need to be maintained. The work of public enlightenment, which is what I think we are doing, is to uncover the historical and anthropological dimensions of human movement throughout the centuries, and by deflating what I will call the ontology of containment. And what I mean by the ontology of containment is to consider the refugee problem always from the standpoint of the recipient state, of the one who comes to us, of the one who destabilizes us, of the one outside who is coming in or who wants to come in. The perspective of the state is that of an ontology of containment that denies the radical fluidity historical variability and interdependence of peoples, histories, cultures, and territories on both sides of the border. You would think that in the United States, one would not have needed to emphasize that. But look at Australia also, a country of immigrants, most reactionary refugee policies. Human mobility is an anthropologically deep-seated drive of the human species, and the regulation of human mobility through national borders is quite recent in human history. This is not a plea for a world without borders, 
because I believe that democracies require jurisdictional boundaries. We must know in whose name the law is being enacted and applied and how we can request accountability from those who enact it. But these jurisdictional boundaries need not be coterminous with militarily armed and violently guarded border regimes. If we move our gaze below as well as above the level of the state, we see that municipalities, regions, borderlands, transnational alliances shape and define the interdependency of citizens and strangers. A very important point to understand migration in terms of borderlands, not bordered lands, but borderlands to consider the, com the commerce that used to exist between uh, Tijuana and San Diego or uh, City Juarez and Texas um, prior to the criminalization uh, of um, the uh, border. We need to move to a broader perspective beyond the ontology of containment, such as formulated by Michael Doyle and his colleagues and called now this a proposal, the Model International Mobility Convention. I recommend everyone to take a close look at it. This convention seeks to elucidate the rights of all humans crossing international borders in accordance with transnational human rights standards for all, economic migrants as well as refugees, foreign students as well as tourists. And here the move is in some ways to take uh, the exceptionalism of the, from the, you know, the onus of being a refugee by putting a broader convention about, about mobility and maybe also does uh, weaken this sharp distinction between the refugee convention and the economic migrant by regulating rather than criminalizing global migratory movements. Okay? To conclude, the 1951 convention is one of the most important international human rights documents in our world, ushering a new sense of obligation among states towards human beings and toward one another. It is in peril today everywhere. But the way forward is not to weaken it further, but rather to embed it in a broader perspective of cosmopolitan justice that proceeds from the ubiquity of human movement throughout the centuries in search of freedom and opportunity, relief from persecution, as well as the hope for a better future for one's children. No liberal society can remain true to its values if it does not also respect and uphold the rights of the needy strangers who come to its borders. Thank you for listening. Yeah. Thank you very much. I, I don't know if I'm supposed to use a mic to do the question. I, I, won't do it. Um, I really want to thank Professor Ben Hovey very warmly for a terrific lecture that really marries philosophy and law in exactly the way that we have wanted from the beginning of this series of Dewey lectures. Uh, and thank you all for coming. Of course, the move to noon hour, though it allows so many more people to come, it shortens the time. So we have really about, well, 15 minutes, let's say, for questions. And I'm going to ask the people who are having lunch with Professor Benerby later on to hold your fire till then. Okay, David. 
How do we know that states' rejection of refugees, that given that it shows, you know, um, it's consistent across okay. governments all around the world, left, right governments, you name it. The question is whether something else is causing it other than human rights. Yeah. Um, to the first, uh, the first uh, question, um, I think that you are uh, quite right that one should also focus on the condition of uh, so refugees in these camps because the number of camps are multiplying. I don't know that I want to say this is all we need to do, but I agree with you that this is incredibly important and that you know the uh, uh, camps are a site of some kind of deep failure of the state system. And um, Greece, right? There are still close to 50,000 refugees on the islands. And at the beginning, Greece was very receptive to the refugees, but now people are beginning to turn, have already begun to turn against them because they cannot rent their hotels, air, you know, BNBs and so on. Now, why is this happening? This is happening, I mean, if I can get technical, because the European Union will not accept refugees to be airlifted, okay? I mean, this is not quite at the level at which you are asking this question, but sometimes there are specific difficulties that create that condition. Some of these refugees, a lot of them want to go to Germany, many want to go to Sweden, the Netherlands, etc. In some cases, refugees from the camps can be resettled. They are being stuck there because states cannot agree among themselves. I mean, as you can tell, I'm more of a European scholar. They cannot agree among themselves about burden sharing. And so because they can't agree, they get stuck there. Now, an interesting case, in my opinion, is what's going on with Syrians in Turkey. Turkey now is the largest refugee receiving country in the world, something like 3.6 million, right? And Turkey is not a signatory to the 67 protocol, which is to say that the Syrian refugees who come to Turkey are under Turkish law. Now, there are a few United Nations camps where about 10,000 refugees are waiting 
entry into the United States. These are families who have been vetted and so on. It's not happening under President, President Trump. Now, what's going on? I mean, this is really an interesting case, not only because I was born in Turkey and so on, but what is going on is that um, in this instance, uh, the majority of the Syrians are mixing in with the population. And this is causing conflicts in workplaces. There is, um, I'm going to try to to come to the point here, but it's fascinating. There are now tremendous issues about uh, underage marriages. The Syrian families practice it. Turkish law now is having to adjust itself, etc. But why is this happening? It is happening to some extent because of ethnic and religious continuity. That this is, that this kind of refugee condition is not giving rise to the nightmares of the Afghanis and the Iraqis who are stuck in Greek refugee camps. An authoritarian regime that is managing this somewhat, somewhat better. So um, uh, I think that uh, just to, to bring this to the point, most refugees want to be moved out of camps. They want to become permanent residents or they need to be given state status. And of course, now we have the situation of Myanmar with one million Rohingya who are hanging out in suspension. I, don't, I agree with you that we should also focus on this. I don't believe that this is just the United States responsibility. So you had a statistic about 650 million people. It's not just our responsibility. Our responsibility is to go back into a position of leadership and integration and saying, you know, just just let's get on with it. The United States matters. It matters a lot. What is done in this country gives everyone else a license to violate international law and to continue certain practices. So it's not the task, moral task of the United States to accept all of the world's refugees. They don't even want to come here. They want to go up, you see, okay. Uh, Why are there practices of rejection? Uh, Two answers, I'm sorry, I'm being a bit long-winded if you had other questions, but these are, you said you didn't say racism. Well, I didn't say racism because Donald Trump is a racist, but the continuity in American administration policies towards Central America has not always been by racist presidents. I mean, our country, demographically, we are going to be a brown, black country in the next decade. So I don't want to just throw around the term racism. We know what this president is, but am I going to call all of United States treatment of refugees racist? Well, in the case of Haiti, there's a dimension of that for sure. Look, you can push me against that, okay? You can push against that. I'm not, I'm, I'm just, you know, putting a position uh, forward here. But in, uh, uh, there are many, um, 41 states <coughs> said to the administration, we are happy to receive refugees, okay? Let us not forget that. The federal government, you know, uh, it, its its role is not omniscient. It is, according to the law, but 
you know, 41 states and communities have said that. Uh, it is um, okay. I think I, I'm going to stop there. There is a lot to be to be said, but I feel as if I'm taking up too much too much time. With, uh, yeah. uh, yes, here. Um, yeah. Hi. One of your conclusion, one of the most amazing conclusion, was about the need to decriminalize movement. Um, and I have one worry about the ways in which states might go about doing that. Um, so, so one way that states have decriminalized some movement um, is by creating complementary forms of protection, things like temporary protected status or U visas in the United States, things like humanitarian visas in France. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are on how those forms of complementary protection might actually be eviscerating the refugee convention. Yeah, and thank you. Excellent question. It's a, it's a kind of between a rock and a hard place. Um, I would, I would say, um, I would say that, um, if, uh, by criminalization, we also mean criminal prosecution, detention, deportation, there is something about the state practice in particular of creating detentions and camps in our century, and, and now I'm talking in political theory terms, that I think we have to, uh, we have to go against. Partially because, uh, I mean not partially, because, because um, the creation of detention camps you see um, as a way of state for dealing with intractable problems is a formula that can repeat itself. It can, I mean, I'm uh, uh, making a point that I think is historically uh, quite um, uh, valid, not only prisoners of war, but uh, you know, the undesirable refugee, the migrant with felony, convictions and all the others, it's very easy, isn't it, for state to, the state to seek that one solution. Right? And I mean, there are political thinkers like Agamben who would say the camps are the raison d'etre, or you know, they are a continuous product of the lib- project of liberal modernity. I don't want to say that. I want to try to see if there are any normative and institutional elements in this system that can prevent us from uh, the practice of seeing you know, detention and camp. But your question is really an excellent one. There, is, there are some articles in the Refugee Convention, and forgive me now if I cannot cite to you, you know, uh, verse and number, which actually urges states to try to integrate refugees into the economic market and uh, resolve the cases as quickly as possible. But I will add one more thing. It is a moment of embarrassment. In the Netherlands, where uh, Martha has also held many lectures and is very well known, when the state decides in some cases that the refugee is not to be given asylum status, 
this is called the... What they do is communities basically do not cooperate with the state and they exercise something called dulden, which in German it means being patient. But the Dutch practice of dulden is the community simply refuses to denounce the person who is out of status, okay? And I'm going to say out of status because I'm sick and tired of this language of criminality and derelict, okay? There are many of you who are foreign students here. You can become out of status within the course of a month or two by some kind of thing that can happen. So the term out of status is, I think, is a more humane term. But you have, you have countries where people are exercising some form of civil resistance, some form of civil disobedience, and just based basically protecting deportation, deportation of, these, of these migrants. And we have it in this country as well with many doctors who are going down to the border and administering medical care when they are actually told that they shouldn't be doing this. But it's, it's, a, tough, it's a tough question. I'm thinking about it with you. Okay, thank you. Okay, we have time for one more short question. Yeah. I have a question, I have an observation. You listed in paragraph one, seven countries from where the refugees are coming. I don't think there's a solution to the refugee problem until the fundamental problem is solved that mass nations where people are fleeing want jobs, want to stay home. Why isn't the effort of the Western world, Western Europe, North America, concentrating on making these non-functioning nations function so these people will stay, want to stay where they're at? This, is, this refugee problem is not going to be solved by just taking more refugees. The fundamental problem is dysfunctioning, unfunctioning, and whatever the word you want to call it, nations that you listed as paragraph one and some others. It's not a question, just an observation. Well, I think that uh, there is some truth, of course, to what you are saying. People, most people don't want to leave their countries as refugees. Believe you me. People don't pick up, you know, and track their children for 1,000 miles from Guatemala, Honduras. They don't do it just because they want to. They are being driven by extreme conditions. Maybe a few are not, but very, very, very few. Is it also a question of establishing justice in dysfunctional governments? Of course it is. But, but we are more implicated than we would like to think. Uh, and uh, there is uh, some work showing that the United States drug enforcement policy in some of these countries which are through, you know, um, drug, through which drugs flow have themselves created, in many cases, the paramilitary organizations that are now challenging, challenging the governments. So it's not always everything is not always the United States fault, okay? But this country is a hegemon. In this continent, it is a hegemon. And in the case of what's happening in the so-called triangle states of Honduras, El Salvador, Guatemala, our drug uh, policies um, have had a great deal to do with some of the dysfunctionalities of these governments. I'm so sorry that we have to get out of the room now because we could have gone on for so much longer. But I do thank want you. to thank Professor Benedict very much. This 
Audiophile is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu.